Revelation chapter 3, we have been uh, this summer going through the first three chapters of, of the book of Revelation. Uh, Jesus sends messages to seven of the churches in Asia. And um, one of the things that, that we've seen is a pattern in, in the letters, and it wasn't the, the brilliance of our preaching team that came up with this. It's in every book that we saw, so... Uh, but there's are, they have the, the, these commonalities among all six of the messages. And so we have taken these six points and have tried to use that as a framework uh, for teaching and, and looking at them. And something that, that you're going to notice tonight um, is that uh, by now, I, I believe that this is the fifth letter that we've looked at. Some of them are really positive. That Jesus has really good things to say uh, about some of the churches. And some of them, he's he's comes down pretty hard on them. And this is one of those. This is one where you kind of have to stretch it a little bit to find something positive uh, about it. And the thing is, Jesus, um, he is the, he's the chief shepherd of the church. He's, he's the boss of the universal church and every individual church as well. And so while our church has pastors that are responsible for leadership in different ways and a staff and community group leaders and ministry team leaders and these kinds of things, we all answered as leaders to the leader of this church. Um, And Jesus is really good at what he does. Uh, He's arguably the best ever at doing what he does for a living. And he shepherds his church perfectly. He shepherds this church perfectly. And every church around us, even the, mo- even the super messed up churches, even the ones where, where we are like, how in the world, are, why in the world are you letting the doors stay open to that place, you know? Some of the churches that hurt some of us growing up, um, he's, it's not his fault, you know? It's not that he wasn't shepherding well. The, uh, the task a lot of times comes from the leaders and the people of the church collectively. Are we dialed in and listening to what he wants to say to us? Um, I heard a, a, a leadership podcast, and I'm, I'm not a leadership person, um, like leadership books and conferences and stuff. That's not, my, that's not my deal. But for some reason, I listened to this podcast, probably because it was Louis Giglio speaking. And I went through this phase where, like, Louis could have told me the sky was red. And I'm like, oh, I really think the sky's red. Uh, you know, it's not. It's blue. But he could have told me that, and I probably bought it. And uh, I was listening to this podcast that he was doing, and um, he was talking about leadership and how when it comes to ministry, so a lot of people lead ministries like they do businesses, which is uh, the leader is like is driving things forward and giving direction to where things are headed. Um, he used the analogy of a sailboat. He said a lot of leaders in businesses, they feel like their job is to be the wind that pushes the boat in the right direction. Um, he said in ministry, leadership is it's about it's not about being the wind. It's about keeping the sails up. The spirit of God is the wind. God wants to push the church in a certain direction as leaders, but not only as leaders, as the people that make up the congregation. It's our job to keep the sails up and to be sensitive to a a gentle wind or a blast from somewhere or whatever. And if he wants to move us subtly throughout life, that we are sensitive to that leadership. I think these letters uh, are written because some of the leaders were really good at keeping the sails up and some of them were not. In some churches, the congregation was, they were dialed in. They knew exactly what God wanted from them. And in other congregations, they had gotten away from that. 
They were trying to be the wind. They were trying to determine direction. They were trying to govern themselves. Uh, They were not being sensitive to the leadership of the shepherd. And it's gotten them in a lot of trouble. And Sardis is one of these churches. Um, So we're going to go through the the six points and kind of build around that a little bit. So the first point is who is is this written to? So we see in verse 1 of chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write. All right, so the, the angel, we talked about this a little bit the last few weeks. The angel um, is probably the pastors or leaders who, are, who would be responsible for relaying the message. Okay? So uh, it's not exclusively to the leaders, like, as in it only applies to them. It's written to them to be passed on to the congregation. Um, so this is really about the church in Sardis, the, the congregation of believers and saints. Um, so it's not like it is here where we have like 1,500 churches in our city. Uh, back then, the, the Christians were, they would gather together. They, they knew who each other were. As people would, were added to the faith, they knew who they were. They discipled them. It was, um, they didn't have a building. You know, they met in people's homes. But it was, it's not like it is now where we go out through the city and you don't know who the Christians are. And this time, they would have known exactly who, who they were. And this, this town is a lot like the other ones we've been hearing about. Uh, very similar. They all developed um, an expertise in some sort of, of, uh, some sort of trade. You know, they produced some sort of good that was in demand in that region somehow. So uh, in this town, it was uh, like wool was a big deal. And uh, they would mint coins out of gold and silver. It was one of the first cities ever to do that. Uh, this city has been around since 1200 B.C. So it was you know, super old, very established. It was built up on the, on the spur of a mountain and uh, had a river that flowed around the bottom of it, basically. So it was like, like a fortress city, almost. Like you, you, you couldn't get to it. So it had a lot of military value, a lot of history there. and um, It was just this old, old, old city that, unfortunately, in AD 17, uh, had a, this earthquake that hit it. And they never, they never quite recovered from the destruction of this earthquake. So this is like the mid-90s. So this was back in 17. So it had been a while. And they, they, they rebuilt the city and they got some money from Rome and that kind of stuff. But it never really got back to its former glory. But um, one of the things about this city to keep in mind is that it was, there was almost like no persecution of Christians here. So we, we looked at, at Smyrna, which had intense, super intense persecution looked at Ephesus and Pergamum, uh, where like, um, it, was, it was okay, but it, you know, it wasn't, wasn't that bad. But here's, here's a place where it was easy to be a Christian. Easy, easy, easy. Um, so they had a Jewish population, they had a Christian population or whatever, but it just wasn't, it didn't have like, this like, anti-Christian vibe that was there. Um, so to be a part of the church in Sardis really wasn't that hard. Okay? To be a part of the church in Smyrna was really difficult. In Ephesus, it was kind of hard, whatever. But here, no big deal at all. So that's who it's written to. Um, the, the Christians in this city where that's just kind of the vibe there. Um, and it says in verse 1 also, um, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So the second point is, who is this letter from? And the answer always is Jesus. He's the one who's written the letter. But in each place... He references something from the first chapter. There's something about himself uh, that he wants to bring out to this congregation. So he could just say, hey guys, this is Jesus, I got something to tell you. And that would be, be fine. 
But instead, he, he pulls out an attribute or something specific about them because this church needs him to be, in this case, uh, the, the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. They need that, that Jesus to show up. In other letters, he pulls out different attributes that they need him to be, and this is what they need him to be in this moment. So the, the seven spirits, it, doesn't, it's, it sounds kind of strange. It shows up in other parts of the Bible. That's really, it's a poetic way of talking about the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the, the member of the Trinity that is at work among us. Uh, he's the one that is um, blessing and teaching and convicting. He's doing the grunt work. Um, so Jesus is saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm the one who, who has that spirit working for me and with me among you. And the seven stars are representing the pastors of the seven churches. So what he's saying is this. Hey, church in Sardis, I, I need you to know something. And, and this is coming from the one, the one who, um, who has the Spirit of God okay, working among you. And the one who has a like, possessive grip on the leaders. In other words, I want you to know I've got you. I'm, I'm living among you. I'm dwelling among you. I've seen some things. And I'm not looking at you from far away. I know these things up close, so I need you to listen. All right? So it's to the church in Sardis, from Jesus. The third thing that we look at each time is Jesus goes into an evaluation. All right? And the evaluations usually have two parts. One is, is he will commend them for some things, and then he will rebuke them for some things. So uh, I want to take those in two parts, because there is a commendation here, but it is subtle. I want to get that out of the way because I don't want this to be a positive sermon. <laughs> because it's not a positive letter. All right? So, uh, so let, me, let me, in the evaluation section, here's part one. This would be the, this is who, look at who he's commending. Skip down to verse four. It says, Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white. For they are worthy. Alright? One of the things in every city is the worship of idols. And we talk about idolatry in America. A lot of times it's, uh, we're talking about materialism. You know, we're talking about self and self-image. And, um, and even like I, the idolatry of relationships that we have and possessions, those kinds of things. Idolatry in these days was like there would literally be a statue and this exists in all, all over the world still, a statue, and they would go and they would worship it in different ways. And sometimes it meant that you would, you would sacrifice an animal. Sometimes it meant you would have to buy uh, certain flowers or grains and present them to the, uh, to the idol. Other times it were, there were acts of, of sexual sin that you would commit uh, in order to show your uh, worship of this idol or whatever. There are all these different kinds of things, but there are these temples and so idolatry was, it was that kind of, of, of idol worship that we're talking about. Um, in order to go into worship idols, you, you would often, you would have to dress in white. This, there was a, a purity and you'd have to bathe accordingly. So you couldn't go in in any way be dirty to go in and, and worship this idol. And so when Jesus says, um, there's, a few, there's still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments... They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He's using language that they would, they would understand that. He's saying, hey, there's a few of you that have not, 
have not given up. And I want you to know everything's going to be okay. You, you need to keep going. You're going you're gonna to walk with me. You're not going to walk to me as a statue and bow and worship me. You're going to walk with me in a relationship because you're worthy, because I've made you worthy. But the thing about this, why I say this is not real positive, is, is look what he says at the beginning of the verse. You still have a few names. Like, Jesus is saying, I could name the names of the faithful. It's one thing to say, like, no, there's, you know, there's some folks out there you know, who are, whatever, instead of saying, I have a list in front of me of their names. It was that few that he could just list them off. So this is a commendation to those, that small handful who are faithful, but it is, a, it is an indictment against this church that there are only a few walking worthy in a manner of, uh, of worship of Jesus, walking in white with him currently. So even the commendation is actually a rebuke. But to those few, I'm sure they were encouraged. Um, so that's the first part of the evaluation is the commendation, which really is you know, kind of there. So let's, let's look at the rebuke and what he has to say and why. And I think this is my, my new scariest verse in the Bible. is the end of verse 1. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. That's the end of the rebuke. He, he doesn't need to really go on from there. Because I, I know your works, because I'm not shepherding you from afar. I walk among you, I'm with you, I see everything that's going on. You have a reputation of being alive, but I know that you're actually dead. This is, this is not what you want Jesus to tell you. This is not what you want written in red, evaluating your life. So here was a church that basically was in sort of a spiritual coma near death's door, one foot in the grave, whatever you want to think about it. Things were not going well, but they appeared to be going super well. And that's what's so scary about it, I think is that they had the reputation of being alive. That people looked at each other, they're like, man, we got it going on, right? We're doing good things. And we don't know what those good things were, but I'm sure it involved getting together and probably praying, I guess, together, and maybe some Bible stuff together, and sharing their faith, probably. And they were, here they are existing in this city with no persecution, having the reputation of being super amazingly alive. And Jesus says, hey, I know that every, you may have each other fooled, you may have this city fooled, but I know what's going on on the inside. And you are dead. It reminds me of when Jesus would say things like, hey, you guys, you're, you're, you're too busy, you're cleaning the outside of the cup, but you're ignoring the inside. You're like a whitewashed tomb. Maybe even in the Old Testament, when looking for a king, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. He's coming in and he's saying, hey, I know what the external looks like and I know that you guys think that you 
are doing fine, but I know the reality of what's going on inside and that you are dead. A lot of the commentaries I read said that they were, were probably just living off the former glory of the city, you know, never quite rebuilt and that kind of stuff. Um, and I know that, that there are probably uh, churches today who that could be said, the same thing, you know, that there was a heyday for a church and they're still kind of not quite living in reality, you know, they're kind of hanging on to the past. I think there's churches all around us especially in America, who have the appearance, the reputation of being really, really alive. You know, Lots of programs, lots of events, lots of, uh, just lots of stuff going on, which is really when there's a lot of money flowing through. You know, Buildings, mobile, whatever, dentistry units, and uh, all this stuff that's going on. Big mission trips, big this, big this, big this. And maybe they're as, as dead as a doornail spiritually, but they have the appearance of being alive. But it's not just big churches where that's a possibility. they got little churches that are the same way. The same may be the case for us. I, I don't think it is currently, but we're not a big church. We don't have tons of money. But we would be foolish to think that this is impossible for us, you know. It will be impossible for this to be said of us one day. And again, let me be very clear, I don't think that's where we are today, okay. But they weren't either the whole time. Whenever the original Christians rolled into there and started making converts and the church was born, they they didn't set out like, hey, let's one day, let's, let's just act like we are alive, but then we'll really be dead. That'll be awesome, you know. Let's vote on it. No, they didn't do that. This, this happened slowly over time, and not over like thousands of years, like evolution time. This is just a couple of decades. This is a, a, a little while since the day of Pentecost when the church was born. So that was like, what, mid-30s? This is mid-90s? So you over 60 years, they possibly went from being completely on fire and alive to only looking that way on the outside, but really they were dead. Um, so we have to be really careful. Now, I'm not here to beat up on big churches or small churches or big buildings or mobile dentistry units or any of that kind of stuff. We need to understand that it is possible to exist as a congregation and have certain things that from the outside look like there is deep Jesus life happening, but really things can be dead. That we can get duped into that American way of thinking, which is like, well, as long as, you know, as long as we have these things going on, oh, like our church is so great, our church is so great, our church is so great. But if there's not a deep sense of abiding from every individual as a part of the congregation, this kind of stuff happens. Because you can keep programming going, you can, you can blow up a budget really big, you can, you can make your building look awesome, you can, you can do all these things and still be dead. That's the, just the weird part about the church. So whether it's a big church or a small church, it really doesn't matter. What Jesus is saying is, I, I care what's going on inside the hearts and minds of the individuals that make up the church. 
Because that's, that's really what we have to look at. Is like, yeah, this is a corporate statement to this church, and we can make corporate applications probably to a number of, of, of churches, but really, the church is made up of the people. And so this indictment against them, this, you look like you're alive, but I know that you're really dead, this is about the individuals. And I know that there are people, Christians in our city, Maybe Christians in this room who look at that verse, and as soon as I read it, you were like, that perfectly describes my reality. That's right on the money. Because I know what to say, and I know how to act at church, and I'm there, you know, and I'm a part of things, and I know the lingo, and I know whatever, but there is nothing happening as far as how dependent I am on Jesus. There is no vine, branch, life happening. There's no life flowing in, into me. And if that scares you, well, good. <laughs> That's part of why we have this in front of us. That's part of why he sent it to this church. He's like, i got to get their attention. What's the most pointed thing I can tell them? I think it's this. I think it's, I know you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. From Jesus. Not from Paul, not from John. Not from Louis Giglio, not from John Piper, not from Matt Chandler, not from David Platt, not from me, not from, I just put my name in there with them, you heard that? Uh, Not from me, not from any of our elders, not from Megyn Kelly, not from any of those people. It's from, in red writing, from Jesus. And I think the underlying tone is like, I know you got everybody fooled, but you ain't got me fooled. Is it a corporate statement? Yes. Is it an individual statement? Yes. How does it apply in this room? I don't think it applies corporately. I know it applies individually to some in this room. I know it. I know it does. So that's the rebuke. That is the rebuke. So I think we have to ask ourselves, how did it get here? You know? How did, how did this happen? This wasn't mid-30s, let's, let's bring the gospel to Sardis. That wasn't here, but here we are mid-90s, and this is where they are. How did it get there? Sometimes you can look in the Bible, and you can look at what is prescribed to them, and work your way backwards. So if uh, someone goes to the doctor, and you call him, you're like, hey, how'd your doctor's appointment go? And he's like, well, you know... He, Doctor, doctor just told me I got I got to eat more vegetables and I got to walk thirty minutes a day. Well, you can work your way way back from there. And guess what wasn't happening? Vegetables, walking, right? Work your way back. Sometimes in the Bible, when when God is addressing a problem and He's like, "This is what you need to do," you just work your way back and like, "Well, that's not that wasn't happening," and that's why. And that's sort of what we can point to here. Um, look in look at verse two. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. We'll come back to that. Verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Alright? 
That's the, that's the exhortation. That's the, the call to action. Verse 3 again. Remember what you received and heard. Keep it. Repent. Alright? They obviously, based on this, like, prescribed, you know, these steps forward, they had forgotten what they had received and heard. And what have they received and heard? How do we know what that is? That's, it's the gospel, right? We receive grace and truth from Jesus, about Jesus, for Jesus, through Jesus, to the glory of Jesus. And they had forgotten what they had received and heard. We, we can deduce that from that verse. It had left their mind. They had, they had drifted away from it. They had, they, there was no abiding life that was happening. They had forgotten what they had received and heard. They were not keeping it. There was no remaining happening. And he's saying, you need to repent of that. You need to flip that around. You need to change the way that you think and do a 180 and turn back to that. And if we think in, in terms of, of abiding, okay, um, if we're thinking like, so there's the trunk of a tree and there's the branch of the tree, and abide is, is, is the branch staying connected to the trunk. That's where that junction happens. That's abiding, right? Where the, their fibers are one, the nutrients of the trunk flow into the tree, uh, into the branch, and then leaves form and fruit comes and all that kind of stuff. That connection there, that's abiding. They had stopped abiding, They'd forgotten the grace and truth of Jesus. They had detached from the trunk. And they thought that they were going to be okay. They thought that they were awesome. They're like, we're a pretty killer branch. You know? We have a lot of fruit. We're really strong. We can exist on our own. Again, did they have a meeting about this? No, probably not. Was it, were they aware of it? Was it an intentional decision? Probably, probably not. Do you intentionally forget things? No. You forget them, right? You can't intentionally forget something. If you do, it's not called forgetting. So they had forgotten what they had received and heard from him. There was no abiding. There was no dependence. There was no relationship with Jesus, and they thought that they were okay. No sacrificial living. uh, This cheap form of grace... And they just thought that they really didn't need him. That's the, that had to be the case. For him to say, remember what you received and heard. Keep it. Repent. I think he's saying, hey, look, you're a branch laying on the ground dying. Quit looking the other way. Quit looking at the end of the branch and be like, man, remember when we, had, when we were bearing a lot of fruit? Say, turn around, look at the trunk. Don't forget the grace and mercy and love and compassion and power of Jesus as your vine. I'll be everything that you need me to be. Everything that a branch needs a vine to be, Jesus will be. In every moment of every day. And here's a congregation that has forgotten it. So Jesus does something that I think is... So beautiful and strategic. He uses some lingo, some language, some vernacular that would get their attention because they live in this city. Um, look at 
the look at the next part of the verse. Verse three. He says, "Remember what you received and heard. Keep it and repent." And he says this: "If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you." Now we read that. And if you've been around church and stuff like that, you're, you're probably thinking like, oh yeah, uh, like a thief in the night. You know, Jesus will come like a thief. This is a reference to the second coming. And it, maybe so, but there's a historical thing at, at, at play here as well. So like I said, the city was built up on the spur of a mountain and um, like had a river flowing around it as like a natural moat. And so like you couldn't get to this city uh, like they could see you coming, and so they had watchmen posted on the walls, and so they were looking down all the time. And so in, any enemy that was coming, they would see them coming from far away and watch them come, and they would like throw hot tar or whatever you do in those movies, you know, on them or whatever. Right? You've, you've all seen those kinds of movies. So this city was like impenetrable; like you couldn't you couldn't get to it. It was like a fortress city in their minds, and. In their minds. What's weird is that twice in their history, an enemy had snuck his way up there because the watchmen failed to do their jobs. Because they thought nobody could get to us anyway. So they fell asleep on the job. Enemies snuck in and took the city, not once, but twice. Twice. And you would think the first time, they're like, okay, well, what went wrong? Oh, the watchman failed. Okay, no more watchman failing. Nope. It happened again. So when Jesus says, look, if, if you don't do this, I'm going to come like a thief. And you won't know when I'm going to come in and come against you. It's not just a reference to the second coming. This is a reference to removing their lampstand. This is a reference to them no longer being a church. This is him coming in and pronouncing them completely, officially dead. He's saying, learn from your city's history. Don't fail to keep watch over your lives. Don't fail to look for the schemes of the enemy, the flesh, in the world. They will find their way in. Don't be lazy. Don't be so arrogant that you think nothing can get to you. Don't be so prideful that you think you don't need the vine. You don't need the trunk of the tree. Don't go thinking you don't need Jesus in your life. Every moment of every day. Don't go thinking you don't need the scriptures to be a daily part of your life. That praying without ceasing is just like, oh, this optional thing. Don't go thinking that you can just go around and have this reputation of being alive and actually be dead. Don't get duped into believing that, into buying that. In verse 2, he says, this, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. 
This is, this is what he's saying. And this is, this is the, the wind of hope that should come into our lives. He's not coming to him and saying, and guess what? I'm officially now pronouncing you dead. He says, just, just wake up. Strengthen the parts of your life that are about to die. Because I'm not done with you. Your works are not complete. I'm not through with you yet. This is this gracious, loving shepherd who's coming to them and he loves them enough to tell them the truth, but also to offer them a way back to himself. And you know what? He shouldn't, he shouldn't do that to us ever, you know? Like, he should just write us off, shouldn't he? You know? When we look into the face of, of this Jesus, we're like, I don't need you. I don't need you. I don't need you. I'm content just putting on a show, just kind of acting my way through Christian community and that kind of stuff and whatever. He should, he should, just, he should just turn us into dust is what he should do. But he doesn't. He says, wake up. Strengthen what remains. I'm not done with you. Your works have not been brought to completion yet. It's not over. So in his evaluation to the faithful, he says, you keep going. And to the rebellious, he says, wake up. See, the thing, a branch laying on the ground can't do anything, right? That's where the, uh, the like, illustration, it, that's when it stops applying to us because we can reattach to him. And there's no lag time, you know? It's not like, oh, well, you got to do these 50 things first and you got to pray these prayers and do this stuff and get your life looking just right and then Jesus will accept you. He's like, no, no, come on. Come just, just like you are. Come on. Come on. And we just repent and we turn to him. Verse 5. This is the promise. So the warning was that he was going to come and judge them. And put them to death spiritually. The promise is this. Verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Man, what a promise. That when you are a Christian, your name is written in a book. And that was pointing to, I mean, they would take a census in these towns. And when someone, you know, whatever, you knew, you knew who was a part of, of this city. And so Jesus is saying, hey, to the overcomers, to the ones who conquer, you don't need to worry, you don't need to freak out. Your name is written in the book of the kingdom of God. I put it there and I'm going to make sure it's there and I'm going to be the one vouching for you to the Father. So to those of you who are here and you hear this and 
you have this a little bit of this just this confidence that comes from the spirit of being like of the seven letters that are maybe would hit us in different places, this one is not for me. Then good. I hope that you would fall in that category of the faithful in white garments that are worthy and that are walking with him. I think it's tremendous. And there are a lot more here in our congregation than there were in this one. Okay. But if you are on the other side of things, if you're like, yeah, I'm kind of like that city that just kind of got lazy and let my guard down. My dependence on him has been absent for a while. And I think I've been doing pretty good. But I know I'm getting weak, and I know, uh, I know I'm shriveling up, and I'm scared to even return to him because, because my dad was always mad at me whenever that would happen as a kid, or or your mom, or um, the authority figures in your life have always just been disappointed in you and whatever, and you're projecting that onto him. Hear his words. See his goodness in telling this congregation to just to wake up. To repent. To remember what they had seen and heard and received. And to keep it. Because he's keeping you. So I hope, hope that this is one of those, um, I had a seminary professor talk about a, a velvet-covered brick. You know. Sometimes you had to throw a velvet-covered brick at someone, which I didn't really understand to a degree, because it's going to hurt no matter what it's wrapped in. But I understand what he's saying. You know. But sometimes the heavy things are coded in, in more goodness and grace than we realize. And that's what this is. Because Jesus gives a rip about this church. He gives a rip about these people. He gives a rip about you and me. And he loves us enough to look us in the eyes and tell us the truth. And he is exactly who we need him to be. And wherever you are in your relationship with the Lord, he is exactly who you need him to be. In fullness and in power. He's never late. He doesn't come up short. And so I hope this has a way of drawing you in as well and not pushing you away. It's always one of my concerns, especially with with heavy texts like this, is that this will make you want to run. But I hope it has us not running away from him, but to him. So I don't know where this meets you, but that's between you and him. Um... So I'm going to pray, and the band's going to come. We're going to sing and respond just a little bit. So let me, let me pray for us. Let's, let's stand together as we do this. And as you, as you stand, let me just, let me just give you a, a little time to, to pray on your own and respond on your own to whatever was stirred in you. So you just spend spend a little, some time with the Lord.
And as you pray, I would just encourage you to just to keep the character of Jesus in mind. It's his kindness that leads us to repent. That we don't confess and turn from those things out of fear or uh, just in our anxieties and worries, but it's, it's because of the one who's drawing us out. It's because of his love for us. His goodness, his, his mercy in reaching into our pain and our stubbornness and whatever. Lord Jesus, I am grateful for uh, for the fact that you care enough to um, to deliver truth like this. I'm sure with this church, I'm sure it had to had to just be kind of stunning in Sardis when that message came through and their their pastor got up and and read to the congregation and I'm sure that it stirred them and caused uh, a lot of dialogue and a lot of things to happen from there and we're the same way I know that the songs we've sung tonight and the The scriptures here have stirred us, and we just want to respond to you. Um, But we need your help to do so. And so, for those who are um, who are just ready to um, to stop acting like they're alive, and to remember your goodness and your grace, and repent of their ways and to, to keep that truth close. I pray that you would give them a lot of courage and um, and help them to work through some of that during these songs. And that when the songs end and we wrap up our time here and we leave, that you would just continue the work that you've begun. So help us, Lord, whether... No matter where we are, help us to worship in spirit and in truth.